0: in the development of these presentations. But uh, I guess when we're thinking about the same question, uh, there are some things that are in common. And uh, I think, uh, obviously, because of my area of teaching, I wanted to focus on the Hebrew Bible. And when I started to prepare this a few weeks ago, I wanted to take you on a little bit of a tour through the whole Hebrew Bible, Uh, but I didn't quite get that far. So we're just going to have a look at the first five books, Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And the question that I'm asking, the primary question I'm asking, is if these pages could speak, listening to the Hebrew Bible in the 21st century. And I think the first really important thing to say, and it's quite obvious in some respects, but it does need stating, and that is that the world of the Hebrew Bible, the people of the Hebrew Bible, the writers of the Hebrew Bible, the people who told these stories, were living in a totally different time to our time. And they were experiencing the world in a different way to the way in which we experience the world. Having said that, they were human beings. So we have that in common. And they were human beings who, to a large degree, were trying to look at the world that they were living in and make sense of their world. Uh, I think the interesting thing, and and again, this is one of the points where I, I would touch on something that Michael mentioned, is that that horizon of knowledge for the ancients went way beyond just what they could touch, taste, feel, hear and see. For them, there was a very strong sense of the spiritual and that meant different things to different people in the ancient world, but they had that sense that there was something more. The reason that I've phrased my title this way, if these pages could speak, is because what we have in the Hebrew Bible and particularly in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, I think is God speaking in quite specific ways across that horizon of knowledge. Uh, And God is speaking in a way that uh, ancient people can understand, but I think there's a lot in there that we can also grab hold of, grasp, uh, reshape, reframe, reimagine in our world today. And so what I'm actually going to do is go through uh, from Genesis through to Deuteronomy and just talk about a few touchstones that I think can be significant for our thinking. But I want to begin with, and when I put this on the PowerPoint site, I actually have a feeling that when I preached here last, I actually used this picture. I don't know if anyone can remember that. It's, uh, it's not a very good reproduction. It's actually a photograph of a dessert that my youngest son made. My, my youngest son is a chef, and uh, at this point in his uh, chefing career, uh, he was working in a fine dining restaurant degustation restaurant, so it was about 10 courses with wine matching and it was all very quite fancy, nothing I'd experienced before. But one of the interesting things of the experience was that it wasn't just serving the food, but he would actually come out as the chef and he would explain to us all the ingredients that went into making that absolutely superb dessert. Not only would he describe the ingredients, but the way that it was actually created. So he talked about the cooking process. It was actually quite educative, really. I felt like I was eating something that I had a deep understanding of by the time I was actually ingesting it. As he described what he had created, uh, I realised very quickly that uh, he was an incredibly creative chef. Uh, I never experienced that at home because he never cooked anything for us. (laughs) So I had to learn that by going to his restaurant and experiencing it there. I also discovered that he was artistic, I also discovered that he made this with a purpose and uh, one of the interesting things I've discovered since he's been involved in this profession is that chefing is all about the experience not just of eating the food but actually, again, as Michael touched on, the experience of the meal is not just about the food that's on the table, it's about the conversation, it's about the fellowship, it's about the presence in one another's company that's really important. The ingredients needed had to be explained, though, because if uh, maybe some of you are better than me, but if I simply ate that, I probably wouldn't have much idea what the ingredients were that made up that dessert. Now, you might wonder, well, why am I starting with this illustration? Well, the reason for the illustration is because I think in some respects that's what we have with the Bible as a whole, with the Hebrew Bible in particular, and with the first five books, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch, we actually have the finished product. And in some respects, we're trying to figure out what are the ingredients? What what were the things that motivated the creation of this writing? Why did these people write these things down? Uh, In fact, why did these people originally tell these stories? Because it would have been oral tradition in the very early days. Why did they tell them? Why did they write them? And I think that when we can discover what some of those ingredients are, just like my son's dessert, the eating of the end product is so much more enjoyable. We actually discover in the Hebrew Bible that it has creativity all around. It's a it's if you're thinking about beautiful literature, then the Hebrew Bible and the Torah is beautiful literature. And we don't have the time or space here to talk about that, but there are so many ways in which its beauty is evident, its structure, its style, its genres and so on and so forth. It's artistic. Uh, I often say to my students that uh, when you're reading Hebrew Bible stories, if you're reading a story of Abraham or Joseph or Moses, you need to picture it as if you're watching a Shakespearean play unfold before you, uh, rather than reading it as words off a page. And if you can picture it in your mind, and that's easier for some of us if we're more visual, uh, but uh, try to picture it in your mind. And these stories actually come alive, I think, in very amazing ways. There's a sense of purpose, and uh, that's always a tricky one because, you know, it's hard to decide or determine sometimes why, why did these people write these stories and not other stories? You know, it says in the Gospels that if everything was written down about what Jesus did and said, the books would fill the world. And uh, that's another example of, of uh, the, the small collection that we have, and it really is quite a small collection when you think about the history of the world and so much time that that transpired. Well, we do have a significant collection, and we can say, I think at the very least, there was a purpose, and part of our journey is to try to discover that. So I want to encourage you today to uh, enjoy this little journey as we explore some of the uh, ingredients. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, what's the relevance to today? Well, I think in some ways uh, the Bible speaks to our culture today, But we need to think about that very carefully. What does that mean for the Bible to speak to our culture? Is it like, here's the Bible, here's our culture, and the communication is clear? Well, I think it's a little more complex than that. So what I've said here is, what if the stories, poems, and myriad other literature contained in the Hebrew Bible could give us some clues as to what ingredients contribute to the world that God actually envisaged? And what ingredients mitigate against this vision? What vision might we capture to enable us to live more effectively as people of faith in the 21st century? One of the things that I learned as a musician, I was a professional musician before I went into uh, teaching and ministry and then uh, where I am now, was that if I was going to play a Chopin ballard, for example, which is actually quite a difficult piece of music to pull off, the best thing that I could do was to listen to the best pianists in the world playing a Chopin ballade. And then I knew what to aspire to. Sometimes it was quite depressing, because I (laughs) I don't think I could ever get to that. But knowing what it could sound like helped me to aspire to and to try to reach what it did look like. You've all done jigsaw puzzles. And how difficult is it to do a jigsaw puzzle when you don't have a picture of the end product? especially if it's got thousands of pieces. It's, it's almost impossible, isn't it? Very, very difficult. But if you have that end product, that picture, then you can see. And I think, particularly in the early chapters of Genesis, I actually happen to believe that, that Genesis 1 and 2, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they are the most critical Bible passages that we have in our whole biblical text. Uh, the reason I say that is because they present a vision of the world as God intended it to be. And we can talk about, as we have today, Michael's talked to us about, gospel, the work of Christ. We can talk about all the stories in the Hebrew Bible. We can talk about the writings of the New Testament, about Paul and John and all these other characters, Peter and so on and so forth. But if we don't have a sense of what the original vision was that God had, then it's like that jigsaw, I think, to some degree. We've got a whole bunch of pieces and we're not quite sure how they fit together. So I want to explore that today and see what we can come up with. So I'm going to do that in a number of ways. The first question I want to ask you, though, is do you read the Bible or do you listen to the Bible? And I don't mean do you have an audio recording of the Bible. Maybe some of you do. Uh, but it's, it's kind of our stance when we come to the text. Uh, do we read it and just try to learn from it? Or do we actually listen to what the Spirit might be saying through the text? Now, you might say to me, well, what does that look like? Well, it's very hard to paint a picture of what that looks like. But I think we at least need to have an attitude as we come to the text, that this text is speaking to me and asking the question, what am I hearing as I hear the text? And actually, when I think about it, having an audio version of the Bible might be one way of doing that quite creatively, actually hearing the words spoken. One of the things that uh, I find myself doing. I have an old pastor friend, actually who I happened to see at uh, Vos on Friday night. John Edwards was there. Some of you may know John Edwards. He's a retired Baptist minister. I remember many years ago, uh, John was saying to me, talking to me about scripture reading, and he said, my goal is to read through the Bible, uh, the whole Bible, once every year. And I know, you know, lots of people have that goal. I have that goal. But he said to me then something really interesting. He said, and every year I choose a different version of the Bible, to read through. I don't just read through the same one again and again. And I said to him, why do you do that? He said, because a fresh translation gives me a fresh perspective. And so he had a series of probably 10 different translations that he would read through. So whether it's reading or whether it's uh, listening to audio, audio Bible, uh, whatever, it's trying to find fresh ways of being able to hear what the text is actually saying. So a few things that I want to talk through, and we'll see how we go. God calling... In Genesis 1 and 2, God committing in Genesis, that should say Genesis 3 to 11, sorry. (laughs) Don't want to miss out Genesis 3. God calls again, Genesis 12 to 50. God delivers, Exodus 1 to 18. God commands, Exodus 19 to 40. God calls in Leviticus again. God commits, numbers, and God calls again in Deuteronomy. God has to do a lot of calling, I think, and that's why it happens again and again. So I would like you to, uh, I'd like to explore these and see in what way God does these things. So the graphic on the side there, God, the world, and people. Michael talked about the, uh, the shift that's happened, particularly in Western culture, to individualism. And I often find myself saying that I think some of us actually think when we read the first words in the Bible, in the beginning, God, what we actually read is in the beginning, me. We become so extremely individualistic that we actually approach the text and rather than listening to the text telling us that this begins with God, we actually have this assumption that it actually begins with me and so everything is focused around me. But there might be another surprise there it doesn't just begin with God. It begins with God and God's relationship to the world because if you read the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, what you'll notice is that humans appear on the scene quite a bit down the list. There's a whole lot of other things that are present before human beings are ever present. And again, I think it's a subtle reminder and again, I'm trying to encourage you to listen to the text. I think it's a subtle reminder that we are not the centre Of everything. Now, in terms of 21st century culture, that's a real challenge, isn't it? Because 21st century Western culture, uh, my experiences in places like Asia and the Middle East would suggest to me that uh, they have a much greater sense of what we're talking about here. My Aboriginal brothers and sisters have a much greater sense of what we're talking about here the sense that uh, there is a God, there is a world, and human beings sit and have to find their place within that world. So it's a matter of shifting the priorities. But God calls. God calls to human beings. God calls creation into being. But what kind of creation does God call into being? Well, there are lots of things we could say about this. But in relation to human beings, God calls human beings male and female. Genesis one 26 and 27. God calls human beings to be productive, to be fruitful, and to multiply. Now, I know this is not new for any of you, but it's important to reaffirm this, that God has created human beings, male and female, in God's image and in God's likeness. So, That says something to me about what God is calling us to be as human beings, to be reflections of God. It's interesting, when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the word that uh, uh, in the Hebrew, Selem, which means uh, likeness, was translated into eikonos, which is the word we get icon from. So we are to be an iconic representation of God's self, which is actually quite challenging and quite lovely. At the same time, to think that, uh, as a a friend of mine said once, the only Jesus that someone might see is you. So how do we image? That's a challenge, isn't it? How do we image Jesus? How do we image God in an effective way to people around about us? The other thing which Genesis uh, 128 calls us to is to be responsible. Uh, to, and, and it's interesting, again, in the Hebrew, the language that's used is the language of kings. So kings ruling and reigning. Not in a pejorative sense, not in a negative sense, but that we would be responsible as human beings for the creation that God has placed us within. If you're wondering about the royal imagery, or the, the kingly imagery, well, kings in the Hebrew Bible are Thought of in a particular way. Uh, You might want to look at Psalm 72, which is a prayer for the king. And what were the primary roles of a king? To look out for the marginalised, for those people who who were disenfranchised in society. Now, in the ancient world, that's not what kings did. Kings were interested in power, in ruling, in controlling, and in essentially feathering their own nest, so to speak. But in the Hebrew Bible, It speaks of a king who is deeply concerned about those who have nothing or those who have little. And so for us as human beings in creation, this is the picture that we get. Oh, yes, we can say, great, God has set us up as monarchs in creation. What kind of monarch? A monarch who would be responsible for caring for the creation that God has given us. When I was growing up in the church, uh, we used to very negatively speak about the social gospel. Have you heard of that uh, terminology? So so growing up in church for me, the gospel was about Jesus and the cross and forgiveness of sin, asking Jesus into our heart, all that kind of language and those kinds of issues. The social gospel was all the stuff you did, like caring for the people who needed feeding and the homeless and so on and so forth. And uh, at least in my context, that aspect was seen to be important, but not really a part of the gospel. I think Genesis 1, particularly 27 and 28, just remind us that this is central to the good news that Michael was talking about. Yes, we need to preach the cross. Yes, we need to preach forgiveness of sins. Yes, we need to preach about relationship with God through Christ. But that's not the whole story, because God has called us to restore the world. There's a a lovely phrase in Hebrew which Jewish people use today as well called and it's the words are tekun olam tikkun olam which literally translated is repairing the world which is actually quite beautiful isn't it repairing the world it recognizes the brokenness of the world but it also recognizes our responsibility as humans to repair that which is broken we can't just sit back and say God it's your problem That doesn't seem to me to be what Genesis 1 is saying. The other thing which these chapters emphasise strongly, again, I don't think any of this is new, so I hope it's not boring for you, but I hope it's reinforcing and affirming. It reinforces the importance of relationships and community. Uh, In Genesis 2, where the man is alone and uh, there's a problem, that's interesting, it's the first problem in creation, because up to that point, everything that's created is good. And when humankind is created in the first account, uh, that's seen as being very good, but then it's not good that the man is alone. And so God, and you know the story as well as I do, God makes, actually it's interesting, again in the Hebrew, God builds the woman, constructs the woman. That's the language that's used constructs the woman out of the man's side and brings them together, and the two form community. It's the first example of community. And what that says to me, again, is something really simple and yet something very profound, and that is that we were created for community. Sometimes we can look at the story of Adam and Eve, and and some would say, oh, it's it's a story that's uh, an illustration, a picture of marriage. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Interestingly, the Hebrew can be translated as man and woman, just as equally well husband and wife you can it's sort of interchangeable in the hebrew but what it does say to us is that we need one another we need community and it's i've lived in the on the fringe of the cbd for the last 3 years and so i spend i usually do my grocery shopping in the city and i spend a fair bit of time in the cbd i see lots of people and i sometimes look at their faces and i wonder to myself how many of these people are alone? How many of these people are lonely? There's a difference between being alone and being lonely as well. Sometimes in, I'm in the city alone, uh, but I, I'm not necessarily lonely. And we can kind of fool ourselves, even in this room, fool ourselves into thinking, well, we're all in this place, we're where community, there's no one lonely here. I wonder. We all need community, we all need one another. And I think these chapters uh, reinforce this very, very strongly. So, a question. What do you hear is lacking in our world when compared with what we hear God calling for in Genesis 1 and 2? And you think about those issues that I've raised. So, being created in the image of God, created for relationship, uh, created to have a role in creation. Uh, those kinds of things. If anyone has any suggestions, please make them. It's not necessarily a question that I, you need to answer on the spot. These are questions kind of for reflection. But has anything come to mind? Something that I might have said or uh, something that I haven't said? Anything? Hmm. I hadn't thought about that before. The, the relationship with God side of things? Yeah, yeah well, uh, well, this is interesting because I think... Um, and, and this is not in Genesis 1 and 2 explicitly, but I think this one of the uh, possible implications of human community is that that's how people actually encounter God. So at least in my experience in, in church ministry, which I did quite a few years of before I went to, uh, to Vos teaching, was that uh, many of people, you know, if you wanted to introduce them directly to God, that was very challenging, very confronting for some people. But they could actually find a connection to God through the, the community itself. Uh, So that's that, as I said a few moments ago, that sense of the Jesus they see is the Jesus in us. Uh, I think, at least in my experience, that's the first Jesus that most people actually see. Uh, And it sort of follows on from that, that connection with God uh, actually comes. Is that sort of getting to the point of what you were saying? Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. It, It opens up a whole... Yeah, yeah, it opens up a whole series of conversations. So, so I have a friend who uh, who is a vegetarian, just interestingly, uh, not a Christian. And uh, so I I asked her one day why why did, and she's chosen to be in the last couple of years. And I I asked her why she did that, and uh, and that actually ended up being a really interesting conversation um, about her motivations for doing that. And and she knows I'm a Christian, and and so we we were talking about some of the the spiritual aspects of that. And and that was quite an interesting avenue into talking about faith with a person who's not associated with church but very interested in those kinds of things. And and as you know, I mean, we all know that environmental issues uh, are are very prominent in in our world context. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yep, There was one? Okay, all right, let's move on. So uh, what I... So as I've got Genesis 3 to 11 up here, so that's correct. Genesis 3 to 11. So the key stories in this, of course, uh, what happens with uh, the man and the woman in the garden and the serpent and all that scenario, which I'm sure you know very well. There's the Cain and Abel story. There's the story of Noah's Ark. And, of course, there's the story of the Tower of Babel. And there's other things sort of uh, in there as well. But I think one of the things that that has always come out of the text in Genesis three to eleven, for me, is is a God who commits to people. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, I, when I'm reading through those chapters and listening, trying to listen to them, uh, the one that I really hear actually often is the Noah's Ark story, where God seems to say, "You know, I've had enough of this. That's it. I'm, I'm going to just wipe out the whole thing." And uh, and that story is not without its challenges and problems. And let's be honest about that. There's, there are some moral challenges with that story, which we don't have time to go into today. But the point I want to make is that when you look at the sweep of those chapters from Genesis 3 to 11, it does actually speak to me of a God who commits to creation and a God who is actually persistent with creation. It's God who doesn't give up, uh, where, you know, as a human being, uh, if I were God, thank God that I'm not, but if I were God, I might have uh, sent a flood. Killed everyone and said, Right, that's it. I'm finished with this. I'll start again and do something else. Uh, But God, yes, God does do that. That's what the text tells us. uh, And we need to wrestle with that. But God does actually persist. There are demonstrations in these chapters all the way through of God's grace. If you think about uh, the Adam and Eve story in Genesis 3, uh, you'll know that uh, it says initially they're naked and they're not ashamed and then they eat from the tree, and then they are ashamed. What's the response of God to that particular uh, sense that they have? God creates animal skins for clothing for them. Uh, What's interesting to me is that when God comes into the garden, I would have said, what have you done? Like I often did with my children when they were young. (laughs) But even if I could see what they'd done, I'd still say, what have you done? But God comes into the garden and God says, where are you? Where are you? And what that says to me is that God's concern was about relationship. They were hiding. They they, they were ashamed. They'd hidden from God. And God was deeply concerned because God created them for relationship. They were hiding because they were ashamed. And God addresses that in an act of grace by actually providing clothing for them, animal skins for them. If you think about the story of Cain and Abel, what's the act of God's grace in the story of Cain and Abel? What does God do for Cain? Cain knows that he's going to be killed because of what he's done. And God actually puts a mark on him. Sorry? Yeah. Ah, that's the Lamech. Yeah, that's, that's the Lamech prayer a little bit later on yeah 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 but for Cain there's that mark of protection which again is symbolic in my view that this is a God who's so committed that God will always provide an avenue of grace it doesn't uh, exonerate Cain Uh, it never exonerated uh, Adam and Eve they live all of them live with the consequences like we do we all live with the consequences of our actions but like us they could also experience uh, the God who is gracious. What about Noah and the ark? I don't know about you, but I don't think much about grace in relation to that story. But the interesting thing is that uh, in Genesis nine thirteen, God talks about a covenant with all of creation. Uh, you know, when, when God talks about the, the rainbow in the sky as a symbol that God would never do this again, and it's a covenant with all creation. And There's an interesting subtle reminder there. It's not a covenant with people. It's actually a covenant with the whole of creation. God's actually interested in the whole thing, uh, which is just a subtle reminder, God, world, and people. It doesn't begin with people. Have you read the book of Jonah recently? Jonah ends with a a really interesting twist where uh, God says to Jonah, should I not be concerned for the animals? Sorry, should I not be concerned for... What, what's Jonah, the book of Jonah, got to do with the animals? Well, I think the book of Jonah has got to do with God and God's view of the world. And God is actually concerned with the whole thing. Uh, the whole thing is the whole thing, not just bits and pieces of it. And I think, again, particularly in an evangelical context, where historically our emphasis has been on things like personal salvation, uh, Jesus dying on the cross for me or for us and I don't disagree with any of that but I want to go further and say this is actually about creation as a whole. The New Testament says God was in Christ reconciling the world and by world it's talking about the whole thing, not just human beings. In Romans Paul talks about creation groaning for redemption. So, again, it's, it's a thread that is laced through the text that we sometimes, uh, I think, forget. So, despite these setbacks, uh, I would want to argue that uh, God is a God who is committed to creation and God is a God who is persistent, where many human beings, I think, would have given up. But then again, I think as a parent, uh, and I think of my, my two boys, who I love dearly, and I think of the times through their growing up when they... Uh, departed from the way in various uh, forms and shapes. But as a parent, I never stopped loving them. In fact, you could argue that when they were uh, going a little wayward, I loved them even more and tried, wanted to love them back. And I'm glad to say that happened, which is lovely. But I think that's the image of God that we get. We get a God who, who certainly has boundaries, uh, but also wants to say, I want to be gracious because I recognise that the relationship with you is the most important thing. So how does God commit to people and creation in the stories of Genesis 3 to 11? I've suggested some of the ways. How does God commit to people? And and what might that look like in our current context? I don't know about you, but most of my non-Christian friends, they wouldn't even think about a God who's committed to them or persisting in wanting to speak to them. So I have to find ways of, because uh, I actually do believe God is persisting with them and is committed to them. So I have to find ways of helping them to see that. So one of the ways that I do it, and I don't know if this is legitimate, but when my friends talk to me about doing Jesus kind of things, I sometimes find myself saying to them, you know, that's something that Jesus would do, which is quite shocking for an atheist, for example. <laughs> it's like, Are you serious? How how, why, how would that work? But then when they stop and think about it, I've often had people who've said, actually, I've never thought about that. Are you serious? Is that, is that actually something Jesus would do? So, yeah, it would be. So, uh, you know, it's interesting the conversations that open up when we find, uh, I think, creative ways of engaging with people rather than trying to, uh, as, again... Michael, I think, was saying earlier. Uh, No, actually, sorry, I'm getting mixed up now because it was actually Ben Withering today at our seminar. I was talking about uh, the fact that sometimes we're we're so uh, explicit in our desire. I think you did touch on it as well, Michael. We're so explicit in our desire to communicate the gospel that we fail to listen and see what God is already doing uh, in people's lives. God calls. The second part of Genesis from... Genesis 12 to 50, actually interestingly the story of Abraham, uh, or Abram as he was at the beginning, actually begins in chapter 11 verse 27, which is uh, talking about Terah, who's the father of Abraham. We always think of the story starting with Abraham, but that's not quite uh, where it's at. God is a God who calls. And uh, this is a call across that horizon of knowledge that Michael was talking about. Uh, I don't know what you picture when you uh, read or what you hear when you read the story of Abram. But my picture, having been to the Middle East a fair few times, is, uh, is this person just wandering around in the desert and uh, doing whatever he would do in the second millennium BCE. And uh, I don't know whether he heard God's voice or he had an impression or a dream. I don't know how these things worked exactly. But he, uh, he apprehends God in a certain way. And the interesting thing with Abraham, as we see his story develop, so moving from Genesis 12 to 15 to 17 to 22, we sort of see different uh, aspects of the Abrahamic story. The one thing that strikes me is that God calls, that's quite remarkable, but Abraham actually trusts. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, you know I think we have to assume that Abraham knew nothing of this God who came to be known as Yahweh. And yet there's something very simple about Abraham's response. And this is quite important, I think, uh, in a number of aspects. I think it's important theologically. So if you look at Genesis 15, uh, it says there very clearly that Abraham trusted in God and so therefore Abraham was counted as righteous. Now, righteous is a bit of an old-fashioned word, but the sense there in the Hebrew is that Abraham was in a right relationship with God because Abraham trusted in God. And that seems to be the simplest common denominator. Here is a person who hears the call of God and trusts in God. If you're not convinced with just Genesis 12 and you need the New Testament to validate that, no, just look at Romans 4. Have a look at Galatians. In fact, in Romans 4, Paul actually quotes Genesis 15. He quotes that exact verse in his argument about what it means to be a person of Christ, what it means to be a follower of Christ. So it's quite remarkable that uh, God calls and Abram responds in a faithful way. By the way, uh, and again, this is a difference in perspective, I guess. So in the New Testament, writers like Paul can talk about faith it's kind of, and even Jesus himself faith is something you have you know Jesus says you you just need faith the size of a mustard seed so that assumes that you can have that much faith or you can have more faith or you can have a lot of faith in the hebrew bible faith is not something you have faith is something you do uh, in fact there's no word in the hebrew language for faith as we understand it it's actually faithfulness so in Hebrew in uh, Genesis 15 where it talks about uh, Abram trusting in God what that meant was not that Abram just believed that God existed not that Abram just believed that God was somehow going to deliver him but it meant that that Abram believed and acted and if you look at the beginning of Genesis 12 it essentially says God called and Abraham got up and went I love the Hebrew, it's lech lecha, so the verb halach is to, to, to go or to walk. And the Hebrew actually says it twice. When, when you say something in Hebrew twice, it means it's really important. If you say it three times, like Isaiah 6, holy, 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 it's really, really important. But twice is really important. So lech lecha, and it's a command, get up and go. And we know that Abram did that from Genesis 12 onwards. It's quite a remarkable thing. Here's an interesting thing, though. Because it's not just about God calling to people. Sometimes people call out to God. One of the forgotten stories sometimes uh, in this part of Genesis is the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, Interesting story. We could say so much about it. But the most interesting thing from this point of view is that Hagar is the first person in the Hebrew Bible who actually calls out to God. And what happens God hears her, doesn't he? God actually hears Hagar and actually says, there will be a blessing for you. You, you will be looked after, uh, which is quite remarkable. I mean, it, it might sound reasonable to us, but it's actually quite remarkable because when you think of the story, that's not really what God originally seemed to intend. God was wanting Abram or Abraham and Sarah to have a child and the line would go through Isaac. And uh, that was a kind of a detour. So Hagar calls out to God and God responds. God also says something very interesting, I think, subtly through that story. And the way I often communicate to students is this way. God looks at a situation like the Hagar and Ishmael situation and says, that's not what I had in mind originally, but I can work with that. It's not what I had in mind originally, but I can work with that. Think about Genesis 3 that we talked about a moment ago. Do you think that God had in mind or envisaged that Adam and Eve would eat from that tree and put themselves in lots of trouble? Well, I don't think God, that's, that wasn't God's ideal. But they did. But then somehow God says, you know what? I can work with that. Uh, think about Genesis fifty with the Joseph story, where Joseph says to his brothers, "You know, you intended this for evil or for bad, but God made something good out of it." Yep. Sure. God knew anyway, so I find it a because... Yeah. Well, and and we could have a discussion about the the foreknowledge of God. What what I'm saying here is that. In my view, God always has an ideal, in other words, a way that God wants things to ideally work out. When they don't work out that way, whether God knows or not, when they don't work out that way, God says, well, you know, I can still work with that, even though it hasn't worked out that way. We, and we, that would be a separate discussion to talk about the, the foreknowledge of God. But thank you for the question, yeah. Um, what, what I think is really important about this is that, is that not, in some respects, a story of life generally? I mean, how often does life actually work out perfectly well? (laughs) Uh, And yet we worship a God, it it seems to me. We see story after story. And I mean, I'm just picking out a couple of examples here. But actually, if you continue through the Hebrew Bible and even into the New Testament, for that matter, you'll find story after story where fragile people uh, fall short of the ideal. But God says, you know what, I can work with that. How many times did the disciples... Uh, get things wrong. Uh, They said wrong things, they did wrong things, uh, all sorts of situations like that. And yet, and and certainly Jesus sometimes chided them, sometimes questioned them, sometimes criticised them. But Jesus never stopped working with them, did he? He continued to take those less than ideal situations and work towards God's purposes. So, a God who calls out and... The question is, what does a wise response to God's call look like and what does it result in for the listener when you're listening to the text? So let's do a TTT on this. Have you heard of a TTT? This time tomorrow, okay? So you're wherever you are this time tomorrow, work or home, family, um, studying, whatever you're doing. And when God calls you to do something, like like God said, get up and go to Abraham, do you get up and go? And, and what might that getting up and go mean for you in your context? It might mean saying something. It might mean asking a question. Uh, it might mean simply being there and being present and listening to what someone has to share. So a good friend of mine told a story about a church that he was sent to several years ago. Uh, He's a a minister of religion but he's also a psychologist and the denomination had this church that was in trouble and they said to him, you're a psychologist, you go and fix them up. (laughs) That's what they said to him. What a great thing to say to a pastor. Anyway, so he went there and I won't tell you the whole story because it's quite an involved story but in the end there was a lady in the congregation who uh, told a a story that moved her profoundly and it was a story about listening to God's call. She said, I was lining up in the supermarket to buy my groceries and I was getting very aggravated because I needed to go really quickly because I had a whatever to go to. And there was a lady directly in front of me and she was trying to get money out of her purse and she, she, she just couldn't do it. She was fumbling and she was dropping money and, and, and this lady said I was getting more and more aggravated and then suddenly dawned on me, I thought, what if I said to her, can I help you? And so she said to the lady, can I help you? And the lady said, turned to her with tears in her eyes and said to her, yesterday, my husband of 45 years died. I'm trying to buy food for dinner tonight and I can't think well enough to actually get money out of my purse to pay. The lady helped this lady and then abandoned whatever she was going to do. They went out, found a seat, and sat down. And for the next hour, the lady who'd been fumbling around in her purse just poured out her heart about her grief and her sadness. And and this lady's reflection on that was that somehow she managed to hear the voice of God, the call of God, and her get up and go was actually to stop and sit, (laughs) if that makes sense, to stop and sit with that lady and hear her story. So what might your get up and go be tomorrow? That's assuming that you do get up and go in the morning, of course, but (laughs) that might be a bit tough on a a Sunday morning, uh, on a Monday morning, I should say. Okay, let's move to Exodus and uh, see how we're going. So God is a God who delivers. Uh, Sometimes... You may be aware, but there's there's a lot of discussion in academia about uh, the exodus. You know, whether it happened, in what form it took, and there's all sorts of questions around that. But the interesting thing is that I actually think that stories that profoundly affect people have some element, some basis in reality. Uh, Your personal story is very powerful for you, and, and all of our personal stories are different. But when a community shares a story, it becomes enormously powerful. So if you think about Jewish people today, the major celebration on their calendar is Pesach, Passover. And the reason for that? Because it celebrates their story. It's the story of liberation from oppression. And it's it's such a profound story that if you have participated in a Pesach Seder, so a Passover ceremony or service you'll know that they retell the Passover story and typically, traditionally, it's the father in the family will tell the story and they will tell it in the first person present tense. So in other words, they're reliving the story as it's happening now, even though it happened a long, long time ago. That's, that's how significant the story is for them. And why is it significant? Well, because it speaks of a God who delivers a God who delivers in a number of ways. So in Exodus 3, the uh, story of the burning bush. Now this is another, this is a, a double barrel one. This is God calling and this is also God delivering, okay? Or at least promising deliverance. Moses is uh, doing a bit like what Abraham did. You know, he's just wandering around in the desert with a few animals. And if you've ever been to that part of the world, you'll know that desert there is pretty much just rock and sand. Uh, and whatever bushes or whatever there are there, they're usually dead, or they, at least they look dead, because there's not, water, not much water. So he's walking around, and uh, the text actually tells us that he notices a burning bush. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I sort of, you know I, I, if I saw something burning I was walking around, it, it would be more than just kind of noticing it. it sort of might be shocking or whatever, but yeah, he notices the burning bush, and he actually says to himself, I think I might go over and have a look at this. Not sure how wise that was, but anyway, I'd go over and have a look at this. Uh, as a friend of mine once said, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting in that, that story that God doesn't seem to put the burning bush right in front of Moses. It actually says he has to turn aside to go over and see it. So he has to actually, in a sense, hear God's call. And so he does that, and, and as you know the story, God reveals quite a few things, including God's name, And the fact that God is going to deliver Moses' people from oppression in Egypt. A couple of interesting things there. I think the first thing is that this is a God who recognises that some people, God's people in this case, are in slavery. And they need release from that slavery. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the people that I associate with probably wouldn't think of themselves as being in slavery. Uh, We don't live in a world where slavery is common at all, at least in our Western world. We certainly acknowledge there is slavery in the world today, but it's not a part of our culture. And so in some ways, I think in the 21st century, when we talk about a God who wants to liberate people from oppression, we need to think about what oppression or slavery looks like for people in our society. So I can remember a number of years ago, uh, a woman divulging to me that she was living in a situation of domestic violence. Uh, now, that's most certainly a situation of oppression, abuse, and there are a number of other words you could probably put to it as well. And so I had to think very quickly on my feet. Uh, what do I say to her or what do I need to do in order to help her to find an avenue whereby she can be liberated from that? And so the first thing that popped into my mind, this is, I'm not sure if i Say things differently now, but the first thing that popped into my mind, I said to her, Are you safe going back home? Because I said, If you're not safe, then everything else sort of pales in, in significance. Uh, and she said, I'm not safe. And I said to her, Okay, what can you do to find a place or a position of safety? So we, we talked through uh, some of the, the options that she had. And fortunately, she had some options. Now, that's not slavery in Egypt. That's not making bricks out of mud and straw and, and uh, you know, manual labour. But, but that's most certainly a situation of oppression and a situation that I, I believe God would want to liberate a person from that. Why am I labouring this point? Uh, I think particularly because, uh, again, when we think about the Christian faith and the good news, the gospel, we can sometimes narrow that down to the forgiveness of sins. And I actually think that the good news that Jesus came to present in himself and through his words and his teaching was actually much broader than that. So think about Luke chapter 4. Now Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth and he gets up to read the scroll. And lo and behold, he's reading a scroll from the Hebrew Bible because that's the only Bible there was at that time. So... He's reading the scroll. And he reads Isaiah 61, doesn't he? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And what does what do those words from the, the prophet Isaiah talk about? Well, they talk about binding up the brokenhearted, uh, release uh, blind uh, seeing the blind can see, release from poverty. All these these kinds of issues that uh, that are about liberation for people who are being oppressed. Now in my day-in-day and day, day and day encounters with uh, not only people outside the church, because this also applies to us as well, we can all be oppressed in certain ways. But the good news is, and that's the good news of Exodus, is that God is a God of liberation. God is not a God of oppression. And so uh, for me, if I can find ways in with my current circle of friends and people I associate with, if I can find ways of... Seeing where they're oppressed, because we're all oppressed in different parts of our lives, how can I bring the gospel to bear in that context? What would Jesus? In other words, what would Jesus say in that situation? What would Jesus say to someone who's in a situation of domestic violence? What would Jesus say to a young apprentice at work who's being abused by his boss? Uh, what would Jesus say to uh, a person who, who I see on the street every other day in the city, who is homeless and is 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 bound up by their circumstance in life? What would Jesus say and what would Jesus do in that situation? Of course, what uh, God said to Moses was, I am going to bring these people up out of the land of Egypt. And I guess one of our responses might be, well, God will take care of it. But of course, the interesting thing in Exodus is that God actually goes further than that, because he's, I'm going to deliver the people, but you're going to deliver the message. You're going to have a part to play in this, and I love that. In fact, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Michael, but it was a sermon you preached a number of years ago. I think it was at a commencement service for Vos actually, about the feeding of the 5,000, and the comment you made was that Jesus performed the miracle, but then he put the bread and the, and the fishes into the hands of the disciples and said, you feed them. And this is kind of what God is doing here in Exodus. God is saying, I'm going to deliver the people, but you need to play a part. And then God will do God's part. So God is a God who delivers. Uh, sometimes it's from a very uh, real circumstance, but also it has that, if you like, spiritual aspect that God wants to, in a sense, release us from ourselves. Uh, I think that's the the interesting thing. Sometimes we're, we're trapped by ourselves, by who we are, or at least who we think we are. God actually wants to release us or deliver us from that. So it's interesting that the Exodus story itself, if you read through chapters 1 to 18, has nothing to do with deliverance from sin. It's interesting, isn't it? It has everything to do with deliverance from oppression. This might sound a bit provocative, but I'll throw it out there for you anyway. I would assume that in God's providence, God could have chosen any time of the year for Jesus to be crucified. Is that reasonable? What's the day of the year or the time of the year in the Jewish calendar that has a focus on sin and forgiveness of sin? Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is at a totally different time to Passover. It's the other end of the year. And so the death and crucifixion, or the crucifixion uh, of Christ, is not at the time of of, uh, uh, the Day of Atonement. It's the day of Passover. Now, I don't want to, you know, draw a rigid line between the two. Please don't hear me incorrectly. But I think, again, for us in our evangelical context, perhaps sometimes we've thought about the death and resurrection of Christ in terms of Day of Atonement, and we've forgotten about the Day of Passover, that God is wanting to release people, God is wanting to deliver people from the oppression that they are under. Now, I'm sure you've seen it in different ways. I know when when my wife and I were in pastoral work for several years, we we saw people uh, released from all kinds of... Um, oppression delivered from all kinds of oppression Uh, and it's it's a remarkable thing to to see it's a remarkable thing to be a part of to feel that God calls you uh, into um, to be involved with people in that kind of ministry but that's not it's not limited for those of us who are pastors and ministers that's that's the job for all of us we are all called to do that now again Michael touched on uh, the homeless and do we invite the homeless into our homes That's another way, myriad ways, of being able to help people to be released from their oppression. So, the question there is, what kind of liberation do you think the Exodus story might suggest if we don't see it just in terms of deliverance from personal sin? If we as church communities... And and I think Les Moody is a good example of what I'm about to say. If we as church communities saw ourselves as serving our community by doing much much more than preaching just a gospel of forgiveness of sins, but if we act in our community as a group who wants to help people to be released from whatever oppression that might be, then uh, I think it's important that we do that. Do we need to stop, Karen, for a break? No? Okay. All right. Okay. I'll just do this last bit of Exodus and then I want to stop and, and uh, see if you have uh, any questions. So, the second part of Exodus uh, is God commands. Gosh, how much could we say about law in, uh, in Exodus and how strange some of those laws are? I was having a conversation at lunchtime with a couple of people and saying, you know, so many of the laws actually sound very weird to us. Uh, but when you see them in their ancient Near Eastern context, uh, they, they, they make more sense, or they would have made more sense to the people at that time. I don't want to speak specifically about specific laws because that gets a little bit too uh, too difficult um, and too detailed. But I do want to talk about law generally. And the problem is with the word law. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word law, I think about laws, rules and regulations. Is that fair enough? Let me give you the Hebrew word, which I'm sure many of you know, Torah, okay? Torah, which is typically translated into the English word law, actually means more something like teaching or instruction. Uh, the way I like to translate it is God's intended way of living. Now, this is, this is another aspect of God crossing over that horizon of knowledge, Kant's horizon of knowledge, rather than letting us wander around like with a moral and ethical blindfold on, wondering what's right and what's wrong, God actually said to the ancient Israelites, you know what, I'm going to tell you what my law is, what my intended way of living is. Now, that doesn't mean that God gave laws, even though there are 613 commandments, it doesn't mean that God gave laws for every single aspect of life, that would be impossible. But what the 613 uh, commandments sum up is a vision of how God wants people to live life. The Ten Commandments, which we so often focus on, is really a summary of all of that other stuff. And if you want a New Testament comparison, then I think the closest comparison I would see is with the Beatitudes. Uh, It's obviously differently shaped, but Jesus is talking about this is the kind of Christ-like life that I want you to live. In the Hebrew Bible, God was saying this is the kind of god shaped life that i want you to live and so god commands in other words god gives a clear vision of how god wanted us to live and it's interesting that one aspect of that is our relationship with god of course but the other aspect of that is our relationship with our neighbor Uh, and in fact it's reinforced in a whole lot of different ways in leviticus it says you know that we we need to love the stranger love the alien uh, that's a reflection of the New Testament. Love your enemies. So we're called to love one another. God commands this as a kind of design for life. I think uh, that um, if we see it as God's intended way of living and don't get bogged down in some of the details, then we capture the vision that God has. I think if I were to summarise it, I would say that what God was saying in the uh, second half of Exodus, and of course we'll pick it up again in Deuteronomy, was that God has an ideal vision for how God wants the world to function, which actually goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you capture that vision and work towards that vision, then you're fulfilling what God wants you to do. The other problem with law is that people see law as restrictive, particularly in our culture. Oh, yeah, I can't do this and I can't do that and I shouldn't do this and I should do that. But I don't see it that way in the biblical text because God is actually saying, if you want to know how God created you to live, then look at Torah and that will give you the picture. So you look at Torah, the way that God intended us to live. Let me pick a couple of examples. Uh, Sabbath. God intended us to rest. In fact, God rests I don't actually think that God got tired creating everything and thought it gets to day seven. She, I need a rest. I'm going to take time off. But I think it's a, it, it's a pattern that says to us that as part of the created order, we need to rest. It's also prioritised, if you look at the Ten Commandments, because where does it begin? It begins with our attitude towards God, not our attitudes toward ourselves or others. So again, it's getting priorities. If you, if you love God then the rest will follow. Now, again, you might ask, well, how do we communicate that? How do we convey that to a 21st century uh, community, society? It's difficult. Our society doesn't like commands, doesn't like laws, Uh, particularly Australians. um, Try it in Israel. They really don't like laws over there. It's uh, very interesting. If there's ever a sign up saying no swimming, you'll find lots of people swimming. (laughs) It's just the the way they roll over there. Uh, but we have to ask ourselves the question, well, how do we convey this? Well, the way that I do with my non-Christian friends is speak about it how I said a moment ago, and that is that I think God has a design for how God wants us to live. And if we find what that design is, and if we live by those principles, uh, then we, we will have successful relationships. It doesn't mean everything will be perfect, but we will have successful relationships. We will aspire to what God created us to be. All right, now, uh, I'm going to talk about Leviticus, but just before we do, as you read the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, do you see an intentional ordering? And when I use the word ordering, I mean prioritising. And if you do, why might this be? I've already mentioned it, you know, that it actually starts with that focus on God and then a focus on one another. What what does that say to you? Why do you think that uh, is the, the way that it's shaped. I think that's really interesting, and again, something that Michael highlighted in a few ways as well, that uh, in, in a world that can be quite antagonistic towards the Christian faith, um, sometimes it's just an indifference, uh, but often it's an antagonism. If we don't have a relationship with people... Thanks, Karen. If we don't have a relationship with people, then we can't really go any further. Uh, so one of the questions that I often ask myself is how do I respond to people with a conversation starter or continuer rather than a conversation ender? Uh, what I've noticed is that, uh, and actually I've noticed this more in conversations between Christians, uh, it almost becomes what we what we sometimes refer to as gospel gunning, like it's just a Bible verse backwards and forwards. and And the intention is, well, if I quote this verse, that finishes the argument. You know, the Bible says that I believe it, that's it, that, that kind of attitude. Uh, I don't find that uh, in a secular world that works because my non-Christian friends say to me, well, why should I take any notice of that verse anyway? Uh, that's, you know, at least among Christians we can say, well, we should at least take notice of it. Uh, but my non-Christian friends are not like that. So how do we find ways of opening up conversations and uh, being interested? So I preached a sermon last week uh, at, at a church and I was talking about or asking the question, do you think yourself as more a teller, an asker, or a listener? A teller, an asker, or a listener? And one of the comments I made was that for almost 2,000 years, the church has been telling a lot of people a lot of stuff. And we're just beginning to realise in the 21st century that a lot of people, if the church is still telling people stuff, a lot of people are just not listening. They're not interested in what the church says. So I was suggesting maybe we need to do some more asking. Uh, We need to do some more listening of what people are thinking about. All right, so uh, Leviticus. I can see you're thinking, (laughs) what's this going to be about? All right, one of the trickiest books in the uh, Hebrew Bible, perhaps one of the most boring books in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, How recently did you read through Leviticus? Uh, If you went to a, uh, a church service in the days of Leviticus, that's the sort of thing you would see. It's not what we experienced this morning, Karen. What's going on here? <laughs> I thought we'd at least have one animal sacrifice. I had, a, I had a slaughterman in one of my Old Testament classes a few years ago, and we were talking about Leviticus, and he said, there would be an awful lot of blood and guts around the place if you were doing that sort of stuff. And I said, well, you know, you work in that environment every day. But uh, it's interesting that uh, a number of things from Leviticus which are interesting, and As a general principle, I think the the first thing is that this is another example of God calling, God calling the people to worship, but calling the people to worship in a certain way. One of the things in the ancient world was that people never really quite knew how to worship their gods. So this is kind of how it would play out. If, uh, If you were about to plant your crops, you would offer your gods a certain kind of animal or something else. And you would do that because you wanted to please your God so that they would make your crops flourish and you'd have a good harvest. If your crops flourished and you got a good harvest, you'd think, great, that works. So we'll do the same thing the next year. What would happen? It wouldn't work. So, So there was always this guessing game of, you know, all this. So Leviticus, while it sounds strange to us, for an ancient audience, it's actually very, very clarifying because it's essentially saying... If you do this in the right way, that may not be the way we do it, but if you do this in the right way in your context, then Yahweh, your God, will bless you appropriately. And so they had a much clearer window into what this God was calling them to do. And again, I want to emphasise the sacrifices. I don't know about you, but when I think of sacrifice, I seem to immediately think of sin. Uh, It's interesting in Leviticus, that of the five sacrifices, two of them, the guilt offering and the sin offering, are to do with sin, but the other ones are to do with thanksgiving, gratefulness, celebration. So there's a 60-40 thing going on there. So 60%, if you want to put it as a percentage, 60% of worship is maybe about thanksgiving and celebration. 40% of worship is about acknowledgement of sin and guilt shame and dealing with all those things so again it's not an either or it's actually a both and now I'm not suggesting that we just directly take the model of Leviticus for worship today but I think it does have some principles uh, that are there the other thing which is interesting too we've touched on this as well is the festivals that are celebrated the day of atonement uh, that day when the community comes together they uh, if you're in the Jewish community today there's a lengthy period of time, a bit like Lent leading up to Easter for the Christian church, there's a lengthy period of time where people consider what they've done for the year and then it comes to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement and, and of course they don't offer an animal sacrifice today but there is a process for uh, the forgiveness of sins. If you go to a liturgical church and some of you may have uh, been in this context, there is almost without exception a sin of, uh, a prayer of confession and absolution. Uh, I'm a bit of a confession here of my own. So my home church is Perth Baptist Church, uh, but I sometimes go across to the cathedral uh, for a number of reasons. But uh, but one of the things I notice in the cathedral, and I really do appreciate, is the prayer of confession and absolution. And the prayer of confession, just recognising that uh, we've not loved people in the best possible way, we've not accepted people in the way that. God has called us to accept It's that acknowledgement that we've fallen short or we've missed the mark is what I would use in... Uh, uh, that's more the language of the Hebrew Bible. So Leviticus is about a God who calls people to repentance, a God who calls people to worship in a certain way, and a God who calls people to uh, recognise that God is the centre of the community. So when the tabernacle was uh, created... The instructions in Exodus, and they're kind of echoed in Leviticus, is that the tabernacle is to be in the centre, the physical centre of the community. Have you ever noticed that, uh, we even see it here in Australia, if you go to towns and cities uh, that have a Christian history, what will be the central building? Well, it was, yeah, the church. You'll see the town hall and other things, but the church... Look in our city of Perth, St. George's Cathedral, St. Mary's Cathedral, so the old and, and uh, Trinity and a number of other churches. But they're, they're in the centre of the city, even the Baptist Church, which doesn't exist anymore, but that was in the centre of the city as well. So uh, so that says something significant, doesn't it? It's, it's a kind of way of replicating what was happening in ancient Israel. In fact, it was even more than that, because the way it was designed in ancient Israel was when you walked out of your tent in the morning, Your tent was oriented so that you basically walked straight into the the church, the tabernacle. Imagine that, if you come out your front door every morning and there was the church in front of you. Uh, Now, we know the building is only the building, but it's what it symbolises, that God's presence is in the centre of the community. Uh, Now, again, uh, interesting in our contemporary context. What does that mean for people today? Well, I think it means more than we might realise when there was the uh, now, let me think which event it was. The tsunami. Remember the two thousand and four tsunami in Southeast Asia. I was at a conference in Fremantle, and uh, one of the attendees at the conference was the uh, the dean of St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne, the Anglican Cathedral. And what he was saying was that the day after the tsunami hit, they the staff turned up at the cathedral, and there was this sea of flowers all over the place. And one of the questions that they asked one another was, why here? Because presumably a lot of those people who brought flowers were not necessarily churchgoers or Christians, but that's where they went, to the church. Same thing happened. I was in Sydney uh, during when the Lind Cafe siege uh, happened. Uh, wow, that was a, an interesting... Day. I was actually two blocks away in a, in a meeting and uh, the madness of the city. But, so a lot of people went with flowers to, the, to um, Martin Place, where the, the siege took place, but a lot of churches were also places where people went. I have a hunch, and, and this was borne out in, in, in our pastoral ministry a number of times, and that is that when people who are detached from the church, and possibly faith as well, when things go wrong or things go badly, one of the places they look is the church. It's one of the reasons why I think that churches, church buildings need to be visible in communities because I think there's something about the presence of the the building. We know the church is the people, but, but for people outside, the building is really significant. So it was just interesting to me that... that that's, so I think there's something uh, inherent in people that wants to reach out for faith. So in my circle of friends... I know I keep on talking about my circle of friends, but that, that, but that's my lived experience. They're the people that I connect with. So, I have uh, prayed for people who have no connection with the church. I have married people. I don't mean I'm married, but you know, I've done a marriage ceremony for people who have multiple wives now, don't really. uh I've done marriage ceremonies. I've done funerals. Uh, I have um, counselled people at times, um, and the pure reason it's not because of who I am as, as a person, but it's because of what I stand for. So they, they know that I'm a Christian. They assume that I have something that they don't have. Now, I can say that about myself. I'm sure many of you have had similar kinds of experiences. It's, a, it's, it's about presence, and it's about people knowing who you are and what you stand for. I do not buy – and again, I might be going out on a limb here – I do not buy into the idea that people at the grassroots level in our society are antagonistic towards Christians. I get that they're antagonistic towards the church but there's a difference between the two. In my conversations with people I've had very few conversations where people get angry at the fact that I'm a Christian and happy to talk about christian stuff now part of that might be because of my job that gives me a kind of you know what do you do for a living i tell them and they say what the heck is that so then i explain it Uh, but but i think the other part of it is there is a there is a genuine hunger and this comes back to one of michael's points uh you know when he was talking about that that feeling we have sometimes are we being too pessimistic or optimistic i mean my optimistic side is that there is a hunger in people but the institution is not going to feed the hunger It's actually the people of God. It's the community. It's the relationship, which we've mentioned a couple of times already. Okay, I'm going to uh, just... So the the question that arises out of that for me is what can we hear of relevance to the way we worship today from Leviticus? Uh, And worship, remembering worship in Leviticus was for the whole community. It wasn't sort of relegated away inside some building. In fact, the people of Israel didn't really get to go into the tabernacle very much. They came to the tabernacle in worship. So, in other words, what I'm saying is, your worship is what you're doing out in your community, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, wherever you happen to be located. I have to remind myself that in both Hebrew and Greek, the most common words for worship are actually service and work. Service and work. So... When I'm doing temp in bowling, which is one of the things I do in life, I am concentrating on my bowling. But I'm also thinking about how am I serving God in this context? What what are people seeing when they look at me? Do they see someone who's uh, the same as them or different to them or do they see someone who uh, has a face that they don't necessarily have? They're the kinds of questions that I'm asking. Okay, let me finish with... Uh, well, I've got two to do, Numbers, uh, and I'll make a few quick comments on this and then skip to Deuteronomy. So, Numbers. uh, Again, some people say, well, Numbers is about the most uh, boring book in the Bible, apart from Leviticus. Well, Numbers is a really interesting book uh, story because it's the story mostly of them wandering through the wilderness and uh, from about Numbers chapter 10 to the end of the book they're wandering around. And the, we've got the, the very famous story of the 12 spies which we all kind of grew up with. I don't know about you but when I read a story I tend to look for the climax of the story at the end of the story and, and actually most of the movies we watch and most of the books we read they kind of function in that way. The interesting thing with Numbers is that the, the climactic point for Numbers is actually pretty much in the centre of the book. And it's all around that story of the 12 spies. And the they, 12 spies go in, 10 say, forget it. Two of them say, we can do it. But they end up, God says, you can have a holiday in the desert now for a few years and think about it. Well, and they do. But the interesting thing to me is that this is a story of a God, again, who commits, a God who persists. Uh, aside from the 12 spies story, there are numerous stories in the middle of Numbers where people complain. They're often referred to as the grumbling narratives. Uh, you know, where they want water and they want food and they say, we want to go back to Egypt. And I don't know how many of you remember Keith Green, the singer, but he sang a great song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? And Basically, the song said, OK, go and do it, like, <laughs> if that's really what you want. Isn't it interesting? When, when we're under pressure, we look back at the past nostalgically. Uh, so when people talk about the good old days, I remember my mum saying, it was only a recent conversation we were having and a similar age to, to Michael's uh, dad, was it? you were talking about Michael, so my mum was about 83 and she said to me this, she said, the old days weren't good, they were hard, they were very hard. There were some good things about the old days but just to say that the old days were good is, is a complete nonsense. Uh, there were some really difficult things about them and, and this is what uh, the people forgot in the wilderness. They forgot that Egypt wasn't uh, good at all, actually. It was a really tough place of of oppression and slavery. Nonetheless, they wanted to go back. But here's the important point, and this just reminds us again that the text is about God, not about us in the first instance, because God is a God who commits. Now, there are some touchy points in Numbers where you sort of get the feeling that, well, I think God's going to sort of tip over here and a Noah's Ark thing or something like that again. Um, and Moses has to do a bit of uh, good old Middle Eastern bargaining. I mean, yeah, it's, I grew up in that context, so I'm used to that kind of thing. So, uh, and, and there is some bargaining. It's a bit like the Sodom and Gomorrah story, you know, God and Moses do some bargaining back there. As a, uh, God and Abraham do some bargaining back there. But, so there's a bit of argy-bargy that goes on. But the lovely thing about the story is that God actually persists. And that encourages me in our current context in two ways. When I stuff up, which I often do, God is a God who commits and persists. And I'm really thankful for that because God could have given up on me a long time ago and dare I say God could have given up on... No, no, that wouldn't be the case. But the other thing, and probably more importantly, is that I know that God commits and persists with my friends who don't have faith. God hasn't given up on them. Even times when I feel like giving up on them, Many of you in this room, I would suggest have children, perhaps grandchildren. and I don't have grandchildren, but with my children, it's by my, being my constant prayer that they would have faith, have vital faith uh, and live as, as Christ-like people. And when that doesn't happen as a parent or grandparent, it's very challenging, very challenging. Uh, and, it, and, and, and it, for me, at least, it, it, it pushes me back to God. And and I have to say to God, God, I trust you to continue to be committed to my children and my grandchildren to come, and I trust you to be persistent because that's the kind of God that I see in Scripture. And I've often said that to my uh, my friends who, you know, some of them who will say to me, I'm just not ready to make a faith commitment, and I just say to them, that's okay. God's not going anywhere. God will persist. God will be present. Um, and God will deal with you on your own terms, not not the way I think that God needs to deal with you. And it's at those points, you know, I'm just reminded that sometimes we need to stand back and just let God do the work. So that's a quick one on numbers. And I'm going to finish on uh, uh, Deuteronomy. And sorry, so just on numbers finally there. What do we hear about God's commitment to people generally? as we listen to how God related to the Israelites from the pages of Numbers. So if you haven't read the number, the book of Numbers recently, just read through it and just with that question in your mind, what, what does commitment and persistence look like uh, in that situation for God? The last one, Deuteronomy, God calls again. We've had God calls before, haven't we? Uh, this is a reminder to me that and maybe you're not like this, but God usually has to say things to me twice, three times, even maybe a few more times. Deuteronomy, uh, the, the name Deuteronomy, that's not the Hebrew Bible name, but the, the name Deuteronomy comes from Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law. It's, it's it's not exactly the same as Exodus, but it's a rehash or a recapitulation of the law in Exodus. And of course, traditionally, it's given on the, the plains of Moab before they go into the, the promised land. And it strikes me that, that this is a God calling again because God knows that we need calling uh, again and again. As people of faith, we need to be called back again and again. Uh, as people who don't have faith, so people that, that we have in our families and our friendship circle, uh, God continues to call. And uh, sometimes what has surprised me, struck me as strange is people who have come to faith and they've actually said to me, you know, I knew God was calling me for ages. I just wasn't responding. And that's that persisting God. So in Deuteronomy, we've got a very clear picture, I think, of a God who persists. These are, interestingly, uh, Deuteronomy is like the first sermon series. There's three sermons in, in Deuteronomy. And uh, as I said, it's like, if you can imagine, Moses standing on the plains preaching to all of these people. So Moses is acting as God's voice, God's call. So here's a thought for you in your current context. When you speak, you may not feel like you're calling people to God, but perhaps what you're saying is calling people to God, or there is a flip side, perhaps what you're saying is actually pushing people away from God. And what I'm saying there is we need to think very carefully, I think, about how we communicate to people. So uh, in counselling there's a principle called joining where you join with the client and that means you validate them and you accept them and you, uh, you join with them in their experience, their common humanity. And we need to do all of those things. Uh, but also we also need to find ways of uh, demonstrating them through to our speech and our actions that our faith is different what's different, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that invites them. Um, People need to see that our faith is something they want to take hold of, uh, not something they want to just push away. So I think Deuteronomy uh, is, in part at least, a reminder for the people to hear or listen to God. And of course, one of the key verses in Deuteronomy is in Deuteronomy 6. uh, Good Jewish people pray it three times a day, at least. The Shema, hear, O Israel... The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And uh, the interesting thing with the... So it's called the Shema because Shema is the the verb to hear. Uh, That's how it's translated. But it's interesting because it has more a sense of listen. There's a difference between listening and hearing. I can hear noise in this room. I can hear traffic outside. But am I listening? Am I paying attention? So the call of the Shema is uh, what the word Shema says. And that is that listen to God that is calling. So I have a suspicion that uh, people who don't have a faith, they may well hear God, but they may not be in the first instance listening to God. And so part of our role as a conduit there, I think, is to enable people uh, to listen more clearly to what God might be saying. So I think Deuteronomy has some some significant things uh, to say to us about those issues. I'm going to stop there because, uh, is it 4.30 we're supposed to stop? So that's, yeah. So I did want to have more space. I probably had too much content there. But hopefully there are some things for you to think about. But just to wrap up, I just want to say in summary that if you can think about what I think is the ideal picture in Genesis 1 and 2 about the way relationships work between God and creation and human beings, God, the world and people, then I think that is the touchstone, that's the plumb line against which all of the rest is measured. And uh, when you look at it in that light, I think it's a very helpful way of seeing it. Uh, And then I'd encourage you, obviously, to think about how that connects with some of the stuff that Michael's been talking about and, obviously, the New Testament context as well. So thank you. A few thoughts for you.